In this discussion, we'll be focusing on the importance of teaching and engaging students around climate and sustainability in school settings, how schools can integrate it into their mission and everyday life, including how leaders and educators can get buy-in from all stakeholders of their school to prioritize sustainability and hold it as a key value of their school mission. We'll also discuss practical and actionable strategies that schools can put in place and implement if they're looking to reduce their impact on the environment around them. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by our guest today. Um, it'd be great to do a quick um, a quick introduction of everyone on the call. Um, so Brett, do you want to go first with a quick intro of yourself? Good evening uh, to all the listeners. Uh, my name is Brett Gervin. I'm lucky enough to be the principal of the Arbor School here in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. I've been here at the school for four years now. It's been fantastic. I've been in the Middle East for more than a dozen years. You may not quite pick it out of my accent, but I am a Kiwi and I'm a proud Kiwi where I grew up on the beaches and the surf and the mountains and uh, found my way overseas and eventually here to the Middle East. So thank you for having me on. Awesome. Thanks, Brett. Darcy, do you want to go next? Sure. Yeah, I can definitely pick up the accent from Brett because uh, I'm a wannabe Kiwi. Unfortunately, I was born and raised in Australia. But uh, yeah, no, I, I work with uh, EIM, Education in Motion. So I'm the, the group head of sustainability and global citizenship there. Um, I've been with them for about two and a half years. And previous to that, I and well, and still these days, I have my own organization called Teaspoons of Change, looking at our personal choices and how that fits into the, the big picture of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So yeah, fabulous to, to join in the conversation today. Excellent. Thanks, Darcy. And Megan? I'm Megan Kennedy Woodard, and I don't hail from New Zealand. I'm an American living in Oxford. Um, I am a founder of Climate Psychologists and um, the new online platform Mind and Planet, uh, which trains teachers how to support children as they navigate the climate crisis. Um, and we do this sort of to bridge the gap between climate awareness and climate action, as we really think the sort of well-being part is where the longevity, the resilience, and the ability to thrive in climate work exists. So we really want to help teachers engage students to feel excited about um, doing their part in the climate crisis and preparing them for the future as green leaders. Fantastic. Great to all have you on the call. Um, so yeah, just, just sort of going straight into my first question. Um, you know, why is it important to make students aware of and teach climate and sustainability um, in an international school setting or any school setting for that matter? Who'd like to kick that one off? I'm, I'm, I'll just chime in quickly to, uh, to already debunk the question. <laughs> I, I, so I think one of the things that, uh, that I've learned over many years is, is not to teach sustainability and global citizenship is to infuse it into into just the everyday life of a school and and the life of a student and yes there are some of those moments where you do the front on part of you know what what is sustainability what are the global goals how do we take actions etc but I, I find it's more of a saturation of small touching points that has a greater impact you know where does it show up in a music class or on your outdoor excursion or the the drama play, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I think it's essential for for every school. There wouldn't be any school that doesn't want to do more in sustainability. But um, but my personal approach and and one that I've seen that works really well is a little bit more of that light touch, but more frequently, so that it, it just shows up in different places and builds a culture and a a mindset around those sorts of things. I, I think international schools are an, um, an interesting sort of um, 
it's just sort of an interesting cohort because for example, we work with the school in the Philippines and you have um, some students that are from the Philippines that will be the future political ruling class. You have lots of influxes from people all over the world. And then you have um, local children who um, their parents are doing everything to get them into that school because they value education and they think it's the most important thing that they can give to their children. So you have this really interesting mix of, um, of different people coming in with different experiences, um, different life experiences and stories. And for them to be able to sort of integrate that, um, that part of who they are into an ethos that a school really supports um, emotionally um, in the actions they take, I think there's a real opportunity for international schools to have a big impact in, in changing the world. <laughs> Obviously, you know, I, I agree with almost most of what the, what's been said there. We at my school, we take an approach called eco-literacy, which although I agree with Darcy there, we're not trying to teach all about sustainability. We have to teach for sustainability where the children live it as much as learn about it. Um, we sort of subscribe to the idea that there are some ecological fundamentals that we need to understand. Simple things, they like connecting with nature and systems and the fact that energy flows within a system and it recycles and there is no waste in nature. So some of those ideas can be simplistic and some of them can be really complex. But if we've got that foundational knowledge um, of systems thinking and, and, and how ecosystems connect and uh, uh, thrive, then we can apply that to make um, sustainable human futures as well. So it's a little bit of educating about sustainability as much as education for and living for sustainability. So I think those two kind of go um, hand in hand. If, if you do one without the other, you'll, you'll get a sort of shallow version um, in my experience. And, and should, when it comes to integrating it into the into, into subjects in school, um, should teachers from all subjects be working climate and sustainability education into their subjects? Um, obviously, it's going to be harder for others, but um, is this something that you feel each teacher should sort of strive to, strive to do, and, and how might they do that? The answer is yes. <laughs> I, think. <laughs> um, I think there's always an opportunity. <laughs> I think you guys might agree with me on this, considering considering what we've all just said. But um, you know, I th I think across the board in any in any sector that I've worked with, whether it's like entertainment or education, there's always a point where you can integrate some kind of conversation or some sort of theme into what you're teaching. Um, and I think we need to dispel the myth that you have to be a geography teacher or a climate scientist to talk about climate change. Anybody can talk about climate change. In fact, talking about climate change is an action in and of itself. And so, um, you know, I think, like Darcy said, um, in music classes, in art classes, in English classes, in civics classes. So I think it's important to really um, give teachers the um, the confidence to teach what they love and what they know. So if um, a history teacher is passionate about um, you know, exposing, you know, the problems with colonialism. Well, that's, that's an ecological problem as much as it is a historical, you know, um, a historical problem. So we can be integrating those stories in. Um, if there's an English teacher, I mean, they're beautiful, read Wordsworth. There's so many opportunities to, to bring that nature, love it, a love of nature, but also um, sort of what we can do about it and empowering the kids to look at it as a holistic um, picture, because that's really what the climate crisis is but also how we can solve it. Um, again, yes, yeah, absolutely, Megan. I, I agree, there's opportunities everywhere. Um, and my schools are through schools, so I think the key thing I always come back to is this age-appropriate opportunities. We don't need everyone to be a geographer or a botanist. We're not trying to teach them biology. Um, that's a subject. 
But what we are is looking for opportunities to connect children to nature, to have them understand how, you know, my health is your health and, and the environment's health is all of our health. So if we can understand that these things are connected, um, then we can start to care about it and we can start taking the next step. So education for sustainability doesn't mean green stuff. I think that's a really shallow view of it. Uh, citizenship, uh, ability to take action, willingness to take action, actually taking action, all these things are more than just green stuff. So what, what Darcy does in terms of what he's been telling us about with global citizenship is just as important as understanding how energy cycles through a system. So we're not expect, I'm not expecting my mathematicians to cheapen the teaching of, teaching of quadratics because they're trying to do it outside. Do it inside. Make great mathematicians and take that mathematics and apply it to models of economics that will help to change our world. This is the way we can make a difference at age-appropriate levels of challenge within the discipline, as well as education for sustainability, willing to, willingness and ability to, to act. Yeah, and following on from that, Brent, that's a lovely, uh, easy leverage point to, to take off from, is uh, some of the strategy I, I think is about ensuring teachers feel a sense of confidence and competence around sustainability, because it is a big, hairy, scary Thing to to try and take on sometimes you know the the united nations sustainable development goals 17 goals these gigantic things you know where the hell do you start so so i think it's about trying to make it accessible relatable and relevant for any teacher or any person really um and so for me that's what i try and do is just break it down to well, what does what are some of the lenses that we can put on into our own daily lives that then just come out naturally in, in whatever course or subject or year level we might be teaching. And, and you know, that, that lens can be pretty simple. Something like, what does this look like in a collective context of, of 8 billion people on one finite planet? And that could be your, you know, your basketball class and looking at, at the uniform you're wearing and thinking about where did, where did it come from? Who made it? What conditions were they in? Just, just throwing in a few provocations or some, some big picture thinking and then the reverse side of that lens that, that I like to offer to educators is what does that mean to me as an individual and my personal choices, decisions and actions? So, so I think it, it, it isn't any harder for a, a maths teacher or a geography teacher to do that. It's just trying to have some of those simple tools that don't seem too scary, but really enhance what teachers are already doing. I think it's also sort of just dispelling the myth that it's this big scary I think somebody you said big scary hairy thing <laughs> and you know it's it's sort of like you know there is no monster under the bed there actually is and we need to address it and we need to talk to kids about it openly and again completely being age appropriate you know we we talk about younger children just fostering that love and guardianship over nature you know we don't need to we scare them we want them to just cultivate that but also actually allowing teachers to um, sit in the space of uncomfortableness with their students when they express anger, um, grief, rage, you know, and whatever they're feeling, actually letting the teachers have permission to not try to make it better for them, um, but actually process with them and then think about mm. It's important that you feel this. This is signaling these important values. You have stewardship over nature, love of species, um, compassion towards other people, equality, all of those things. How do we then take those important emotions and translate them into actions? And I think helping teachers to um, hold that space for themselves, but also with their students is a really important tool that they can use. And just sitting on that for a second, um, 
how 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 would you or how might you deal with a teacher or students that are feeling you know overwhelmed or anxious perhaps Megan I know you've done quite a bit of work on this um, it'd be great to get your individual views on 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 what kind of steps um, school leaders or even staff might take if if they see their colleagues or, or the people that they're working with perhaps feeling anxiety or, or stress around it um, you know it'd be great to learn some of your approaches. Brent, your turn to kick off first, surely. Happy to do your first, sure. Um, I, I think always proactivity is better here. So if we can get ahead of this with proactive um, measures, to, I think exactly what Megan said is help children realise that all emotions are okay. Uh, it's the strategies that we have to deal with that and take it from frustration or anxiety or whatever it is to uh, some kind of resolution. So we, we, we again, we... Took, took a really proactive approach and said we can't separate the cognitive from the emotive. That would be silly. So we've brought into, you know, inverted commas, brought into a program called Positive Education, which is a research informed framework to help children understand their emotions and their character strengths and then go forward with that. So assuming that we've done that, there's still going to be a little bit of ambulance at the bottom of the cliff when children come in and anxious and worried. And, and so we, you know, we both train our own staff and how to respond to that. Proactively, um, we we have some specialists in our school, so we have um, some social emotional counsellors who work a lot with that. And you know, like you would if someone was struggling with mathematics, you send them to the specialists. It's not that there's a deficit model here; it is this is the person who's got the exact set of skills that can help in it. So in a school, you know, you put your resources and time and effort where you want to make a change. So we put our resources and time into having the right people and the right training. Um, and as a school leader, I guess that's a that's a decision for you to prioritize or not depending on what you think is most important yeah and, and a slightly different angle from from my way of having this conversation with either students who are you know very passionate about this or some who are completely apathetic or teachers as well and and when it comes down to the the basic denominator i say well doing something is better than nothing um and so we can't change the world by ourselves as one person but also doing nothing, we, that's the only guarantee we have that, that things can't change. If we do something, I can't guarantee you that it's going to, you know, I don't tell people, oh, teaspoons are changed, turn off the light and you'll save the world. It's about, well, your, your head and your heart is connecting to your hand, which is turning off that light switch. And that is significant. The fact that you are connecting your actions to their impact, that's really what we're talking about. And, and yes, we, we can't control things that are so huge, but again, what we can control our own personal actions and, and behaviors and attitudes towards these things and, and doing something is far better than doing nothing. So it's a slightly pessimistic maybe way of looking at things, but it, I think it can also be quite a proactive way, especially if you've got things like positive education, the work that Megan and other people are doing. And, and just that, that narrative really, I think hits a chord with, with young people to feel like, okay, I don't hold all the cards in my hand, but here's, here are a few things I know I can do and that, you know, throwing it out into the world and, and seeing where it lands. I mean, a, a, a couple of things that I think I completely agree with that. I, I think one thing is um, teachers have the opportunity to really give up the myth of perfection in this um, mm. and having to be, you know, do everything right. Because I think there's been the absolute disinformation campaigns that have perpetuated the myth of this being the responsibility of the individual. And it's really important that we foster that resilience and that self-efficacy in young children and older children and everyone really, <laughs> um, that we all make a difference because it's important that we all are those teaspoons of change. But I think with that said, um, 
there there is sort of the, the propensity for um, the idea of like climate anxiety to climate action and that resolves it. And to some degree, some climate action does sort of um, help with climate anxiety, but there's it can also be treated as a sort of buffer where people end up having to do uh, do more work because they're anxious and then they're not doing enough and they kind of get in this rat trap. And and actually what's um, literature is showing now and studies are showing now is um, actually um, climate anxiety is really helped by collective action. And so if you're a teacher in a school and children are coming to you talking about this, again, taking their individual emotions and normalizing them. Yes, your peers feel this way. I sometimes feel this way. That actually brings out that, that community um, connection, that collective response that's okay to feel these big emotions, but what are we going to collectively do at, 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 with these emotions? And I think that that's really helpful for teachers to kind of, um, you know, bring everyone in. Um, leading on to my next question, you know, lovely there. You know, why, why is it, why, why, you know, taking buy-in from stakeholders uh, across the school is is vital to to make any impact, right? So, so why is stakeholder buy-in so important when developing whole school strategies uh, for sustainability? Um, and perhaps some of what, some of the challenges you've each faced um, regarding getting this buy-in from stakeholders. Um, Darcy, do you want to kick that one off? Yeah, I can. I mean, the, the first thought that comes to my mind is, um, you know, I've been lucky to be in this space for a long time. And once upon a time, you, you were the crazy person in the corner talking about these sorts of things. And, and who knows where it came from, but eventually and surely we're not the, the crazy people in the corner these days. There, there are, Most people were somewhere around there. And, and so I think, you know, in my work around sustainability and global citizenship has just become easier and easier every year in terms of engaging people. Um, so I think it's just been, there's just been a growing trend and, and way of people engaging with these topics and issues. So, so I think these days the buy-in is, is a lot easier. Um, you know, it's pretty hard to debate the, the idea of, well, probably we should be better people. Um, that, you know, when I'm presenting to five-year-olds, you know, what is global citizenship and these big words and where do they fit into it? And it's like, well, what does it mean to be a good person? Uh, and, and we all know what that kind of means. But and like Megan said, it's not that perfectionist. It's just like trying to make good choices when we can. But to go, sorry, to go back to your, to your question around stakeholder buy-in, I, I think for me, it, it has to be a mix of sort of science and entertainment and coming back to that accessibility so that most people, well, not so much these days, but certainly in the past, people think you're going to give them a moral bashing or a guilt trip or ask them for money when you start talking about some of these you know, social justice and, and sustainability topics and issues. So, so I think making it accessible using sport or music or popular culture to have conversations around these things, as well as some very strategic tools, maybe something like um, ESG, environment, social governance reporting, or relevant tools that can, can bring people around the table to have higher quality conversations on these topics. So I'll, I'll just sort of land it there, I think, and, and leave space for, for more conversation on that one. But yeah, stakeholder engagement is easier, but uh, how we do it is is always a multifaceted, you know, bunch of ideas um, to throw out on the table. I'll, I'll pick up then. So um, I think I think 100% agree that no one has ever come to my school and said, oh, you do sustainability. No, thank you. We don't want that. Uh, that puts an easy sell, right? When they come in and they, in my school, I'm very lucky with our facilities and, and there's some lovely things going on there. So that puts an easy sell. I think the hard bit is authenticity. 
if you're going to take this up as an organization or as a school leader is you can't just say we do you know we're the green school and we do earth hour because that all it all not wash so stakeholder buy-in comes with authenticity um myself and, and one of my team who do it does all our marketing we always say that marketing is the the propaganda of consumerism we're not marketing to our families we're telling authentic stories and you can only tell authentic stories if you're authentic because otherwise it just unravels so the, the stakeholder buy-in comes from an authenticity of purpose you live it you breathe it um you know it's not an either or conversation we're not saying in schools you can have great mass or sustainability these are these are both end conversations and i think like like darcy said you tell the story you tell it through art and drama and fun and and, and laughs and commitment and expectations and and if everyone comes in expecting that, uh, then they know it. And if they're in there and it doesn't wash with their values, then they go elsewhere and, and that's okay um, because we're building a community and that community will grow if you stay authentically to that purpose. Um, yeah, I would I would like to just touch back on what Darcy said at the beginning of just sort of, you know, being kind of the, um, the pariah and being brave enough to be the pariah in the school if your school isn't yet there with sustainability, if they prioritize other things. Um, there's the sort of like 25% um, changes social mandates, and we can see this in things like suffragettes, um, civil rights movements. It doesn't have to be everybody in the community, but if you can get to that 25% tipping point, that's where you really start to pull in um, the putting it into the um, the sort of popular narrative, and and that's where you can actually drive that buy-in if you have enough people getting going with it. So I would say, you know, if if um, you don't have buy-in from the top yet. Don't mm. give up. Keep going. It, you, it, there's got to be the first person always. And if you're the one that instigates this and keeps it going and drives it, but in a way that's very positive, like, oh, my kids are loving how we're exploring this in music class. And, oh, they're getting so much out of um, our civics discussion here. And start to talk about all the positives. And, and that's where you're going to nudge um, your colleagues into that space of, oh, actually, we really need to be on top of this. This is the way this is going. Yeah, Megan, that, that's a really good point about, sorry, um, stakeholder engagement, I think, more so than sort of stakeholder people. You know, we we went, we've been through a phase somewhere, you know, five or so years ago where everyone was trying to be the plastic police. Like, oh, you can't do that. Or if Darcy's walked in the room, I better make sure I'm doing everything sustainable. It's like, well, I'm not perfect. No, no one is, that's for sure. Um, but but I think that shifting around that that positive angle as well, which, which all, all three of them, four of us share, um, around that. So I think that's a really good point. And the early adopters, that adoption curve, like I say, just you only need to get a third of the team on board and then you're away. But if we're thinking of percentages, and I think the interesting thing of this is an inter-school, international schools network is by and large, we're, we're a privileged group because that's that's where our clientele come from. So that puts us sort of in the 1%. If you think of it, something like 1% of the planet uses 70% of the resources and 1% of the planet produces 50% of the um, emissions, something like that, don't quote me. So we only actually have to change 1% of the population of the planet, which is us, right? So everyone that's sitting in our schools is the people we have to change. So that, what a noble purpose. We only have to fix Albert. And if we can fix Albert, then we're in a far better position. The rest of it will take care of itself. Yeah. Such a great point. Um, and, and just to looking at some of the actionable strategies that you've implemented in your school settings um, that perhaps you know, uh, listeners to this can, can take away. Um, you know, what, what strategies have you used to get, to get stakeholder buy-in from, from parents in the wider school community? Um, uh, ones that have maybe that have worked really well and then maybe ones you've tried that, that didn't work perhaps um, so well, but it'd be great to touch on some of those. 
Darcy, you're nodding your head. You wanna... <laughs> sure. Yeah, I can go down my ESG wormhole now, if you like. <laughs> well, I mean, I won't. I'll, I'll cover it briefly. But, um, yeah, I, I, from Brett, what you were just saying then, I think something that I think about is this systemic acupuncture point. It's a term from, from Richard Haynes and, and a few other wonderful thinkers. You know, where do we put our little needle of influence to, to have the, the impact that we can? Um, and so a couple of tools that we've been using at, at EIM is, um, is ESG reporting environment, social governance reporting, and also a carbon roadmap or, or carbon mapping. And so these are pretty business-orientated, science-y type things, but, uh, but I think there's a lot of scope there for student engagement in particular. So how do we have some of this vocabulary so that we can be a part of the conversations happening in Davos, just around the corner from Switzerland, where I am actually at the moment, and how do we have that vocabulary so that we don't just buy into something like ESG, but our students can learn about this and transform it into something far better, far more authentic, far more positive uh, and, and impacting in the world. So, so I think something that we're trying to do is bring everyone onto a similar page where we, again, kind of can have these higher quality conversations and some, some just simple questions that we ask for our community engagement from students and parents and suppliers and those sorts of things is what's important to us? What are we doing well? And what more could and should we be doing in terms of you know learning, planet, people, policy, uh, those sorts of things? And I think if we can bring people around some, some high quality conversations, um, maybe produce a report. The report is almost insignificant. It really is about the process. But uh, but there are a couple of tools that I've I've tried to use in the last couple of years to I think I think to some good effect. It takes a lot of time for people to get their head around some of these concepts. But as long as people are having conversations and uh, and coming back to them with some sense of accountability, I think that's something that I've I've tried to use in the last couple of years for sure. Um. I would say before it was climate psychologists, it was just psychologists. So I kind of, I, I like this part and without, I don't want to say insidious. So maybe we'll say um, stealthy, <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's looking at your audience and individual um, groups. So if a school is highly motivated by outcomes, talk about stats, talk about the level of anxiety that children are ex um, experiencing, um, talk about, uh, you know, the impact that you as a school can have. If they're highly motivated by accolades, talk about how all the other schools are doing this. And it's actually, you know, it looks really bad if you're not doing it. Um, nudge, you know, talk about how, um, how much better their school will be, how, how more um, uh, just sort of um, what better potential employees your, your group it, um, sorry, <laughs> like what you could bring to sort of the upcoming markets in terms of um, their ability to get good jobs, especially in the green economy. So it's kind of finding your way into what the school values. And like we said at the beginning, there's always the opportunity to have the climate conversation. So just figure out what their, I guess, like the acupuncture pressure point is <laughs> and find that and twist it and get in there. <laughs> Yeah, I like that the the acupuncture, the needle point. We've, we've been you said tipping points. So, um, I think all complex adaptive systems, ecosystems, have those points of emergence. So, how do we predict them? Is a big question I've got. So maybe I need to speak to Darcy about that. But um, in terms of stakeholders, uh, the the easiest on ramp for parents is their kids. <laughs> so we're not we're not indoctrinating. We're educating. So I would never for. For example, maybe never is a strong word, but um, if I were to remove meat from our menu, for example, it wouldn't be about veganism. It would be the sustainable choice. 
same as we wouldn't use that chemical, we wouldn't use um, this medical procedure because we know it's bad for personal planet. We're just not going to choose this thing because it's bad for people and planet. So trying to, you know, doing what we do and hopefully doing it well is the children then become a vehicle to convince other people. That's a really good on-ramp. And also if you're trying to convince, you know, your local transport agencies or bus people or the, the rubbish um, collectors, students, particularly young children, are really good at convincing adults. Um, it's hard to say no to kids. So that, that's a good trick. Put the kids up front. Um, they don't want to listen to me. Two, try not to be too preachy. No, no one really likes being lectured to and preached to. So all the things that we, maybe not all the things, but a lot of things we're trying to do is just build community. So all the things that your community already want, if you've got a, a group of a certain nationality, what can you offer them that brings them to site? And then they just become a part of it. So build community around that purpose by leveraging the things that they already enjoy doing, whether it's mums and tots or barbecue on site or, you know, an opportunity to learn um the local language or their own native language so leveraging the community that you already have and just trying to build it around your mission and then you'll turn around i think we do now and realize that everyone's on board well again everyone's a strong word but you know that's that uh on ramp now other thing i was going to say is when you when you're trying to make significant change um then providing multiple on ramps that gives people a sort of choice a level of difficulty whether it's you, know, you pay for it we'll pay for it and bill you um, or here's another way to do it for free but it takes a little bit of legwork any of those is fine but you're just going to choose one um, so that's probably the other way but and that takes a bit of work from our side but it's again it's a noble cause so it's worth the effort excellent well we touched on how important it is to to genuinely build it into the into the curriculum and ethos and, and, and you know mission for the school um so so how can climate sustainability education be built genuinely into the school curriculum ethos and mission um to inspire that you know students to take responsibility during their time at school um and develop that sort of lifelong passion for sustainability um what are the what are the some of the the techniques and strategies you've used to do that more widely um, I think I think Brett brought up an interesting point of sort of putting the kids to the front of it. Um, there was a study that came out today, actually, of 30, 37,000 um, children from 150 countries. And um, it was asking sort of what do they want, if they could form their education, what would they leave on? And 42% um, said that they would like to um, learn how to take better care of their mental health. And um, 44% they said that they wanted to learn um, how to tackle climate change and take better care of the planet. And that's a huge number. You know, the other, I think the other two was budget and I can't remember the other one, but it was, it was interesting to see those numbers coming out because this is something that's really important to kids. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of as important as like DEIJ. And so you want to bring that diversity, inclusion, justice environment in. And I think that it won't be too long before that actually is the norm, I hope. Um, but at the same time, it's, I think it's about inviting students and teachers into the design of the curriculum, um, looking at, again, what the school's interested in. If they're a big sports school, how they can turn that into some sort of interest or meaning or um, impact that they can have. Um, and again, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really about just sort of helping students find their voice and their path and how that relates to the school. I'll see you. Oh, does. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll probably just uh, repeat on a couple of things. I said, I'm, I, I think the lens aspect is is really useful. And again, the, the confidence and competence of teachers and just working with them to so that they feel a sense of ownership and, and connection to things like global citizenship without it being too prescriptive, but um, 
I, I suppose, scaffolded enough so that they they have some connection, but then some autonomy for them to explore on their own thing. So I'm not a big fan of giving definitions or, you know, here's the global goals, include them in your lesson. I, I, it, it's a bit of an evolution for people to to come from from wherever they're at on their spectrum to feeling comfortable to be able to include these perspectives into their class. But th this is where I think modeling some of those examples becomes very uh, useful. So, you know, hey, here's an example in that PE class looking at basketball uniforms or the music class and the violin that's under your chin. Where did those strings come from? The, you know, in your bow, that, that sort of thing. And uh, and eventually, I, I, I think over time with some decent vocabulary, a bit of modeling, um, maybe some formality in the curriculum, like, okay, where can we add in the global goals? What are our touching points uh, in this unit of work? A little bit of deliberate stuff, a little bit of professional learning. Um, I think just some good stimuli, like like Megan said, like here's a report to read. You just build that culture around it. So people slowly but surely become have a closer connection to these topics and issues and can start feeding them into their own personal lives and also into the uh, the school life around them. Mine, mine would be kind of a little bit more of a uh, boring approach, but you know, I, one thing I know school leaders are fantastic at, fantastic and they should give themselves credit, is taking a new initiative or something that's really important and building into the school. They're fantastic at action planning and putting people in the right place and applying the right levers. So all I, I would suggest is you wouldn't never fix a, a problem with literacy. You know, we've got a, we've identified a gap in year ten literacy. Let's buy ten books and put them in the library. They would never do that, right? They would they would think about how they make the change, how they resource it, where they put their time, what they do with the curriculum. It would be a, a years long process. So I guess I'd say, okay, take out literacy and put in sustainability. Who are you going to apply to this to make a difference? Um, where are you going to put the time? What resources are you going to need? So the, the same structures that a school uses to improve literacy, it's exactly the same as I would suggest to use for sustainability, just change the word. And if you need an expert in literacy, you'd go and find one. If you need an expert in sustainability, you'd train one up or you'd go and find one. So um, curriculum is really, really busy already. So we all know it's super full. So one good thing has to displace one other good thing. So it's a definitive decision from a leader to say, this is so important to me that it's, I'm going to find a way to fit it in. I'm going to apply the same levers that I would apply to change for anything. I'm just putting sustainability. And, and leaders are fantastic at doing that in schools. We know they are because that's how they drive change. I sort of I sort of wonder about the element of actually one thing in one thing out because we've talked a lot about how this can infiltrate every subject so when we were designing our curriculum it was you know there's 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 the science element of it but it's mostly yeah. about intersectional is the intersectionality it's about um how we process news and information and deciphering whether or not it's real it's talking about um activism and indigenous wisdom it's so actually it, those are all the things that need to be touched on in different in different subjects so it's not necessarily pushing anything else out and I think it's sort of dispelling that myth for teachers that they're going to have to kind of cram something in for something else to come out because I think I, th I think that's where it feels the teachers feel that pr extra pressure of already a difficult subject now I've got to bring it in and hold the space and so I think that that's 
that's one thing. I think also just talking about how you get children to sort of have that longevity and and have that lifelong passion for sustainability. Again, I think it's about for for maybe it's just the psychologist in me, but that that middle well being part of it, not just being about this is the information, this is the action, but actually building that resilience, building that ability to find what they're passionate about, what they care about, and they'll find that if the curriculum is broad enough, because they'll you know it might be math, it might be geometry, it might be poetry whatever it is. But if you open up that whole space in a grand curriculum, every child that comes out of that is going to feel more resilient, more self-efficacy and more empowered to go and take climate action. Yeah, we don't argue often, but I'm going to argue a little bit only because I think it's important that we don't all just agree all the time. But if I pick out the British National Curriculum as, as, an, um, as a specific example, climate education features like that. And if we want children of a certain age to learn about it, we're going to have to find a way to put it in as well as thread it through. Um, and I guess that's my point. I 100% think we can touch on it everywhere in the systems thinking and the approaches, everything you're saying, Megan, is, can be done in geography as much as it can be done in, in music. But um, we also should be advocating for changes to national curriculum where they don't feature sustainability uh, or, or climate change. But I mean, I mean, climate change itself is one of what nine planetary boundaries. So it's a, it's a major issue now, but it's not alone. So, um, yeah, and, I, and I think it is that shift. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, they've already, so the national curriculum here is just in, um, brought in the um, GCSE course that you can do on, on sustainability, you know, so it, it is coming in, but again, it's specific subjects. And, and mm. I, I think we've all agreed it's across the board sort of mandatory thing that should happen. Yeah, a term I like to use is um, curriculum agnostic, where <laughs> where we can we can kind of do some of these things regardless of what curriculum. I mean, I, I had to write a lot of curriculum ten years ago, and I didn't like it particularly because they don't last very long, um, and they shouldn't. Like they should evolve, etc. So yeah, Brad, I agree. Like some touch points in the curriculum is really important because it, it grounds those sorts of things. But then also giving some tools where people can add in. I, I kind of call it a value add rather than a, just an add in to yeah. and enhance whatever people are already doing. Uh, but it does require some some hand holding and just some really simple examples. And for people to feel the power of what they're doing, you know, we, we're lucky as educators that we do get to put our fingerprint in the future of the world by by being educators and 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 also people who are involved in our schools. You know, if you're working in the school canteen and chopping up the onion for that day, you're a part of that child's nutrition and for them to have a great learning environment. And so if we can kind of holistically look at this from time to time and realise what we're doing is significant, uh, you know, we don't want to overblow it too much, but but we do have a, a really great opportunity to, to bring these conversations in and these little touching points uh, where they're appropriate and try and push for more of them. Yeah, and, and and that sort of moves me on to onto our last last question for the for discussion here is looking at some initial strategies and practical um, initiatives that schools can can start to do. You know, if if obviously you know we've agreed that most most leaders around the world and educators are passionate about the environment and, and how that how their school impacts the environments around them. Um, what are some initial strategies that you might advise they, they where they could start? Perhaps they're quite far behind in that journey and they want to to start somewhere or perhaps they're, you know, in the middle of the journey and they want to sort of kickstart it even further. Um, any, any ideas, any, any sort of final tips and thoughts that you might advise um, for them? Uh, I can, <laughs> it's, um, I think educators always, they love doing, right? So we, we are always willing to do. So I think first, 
is to decide that there's, there's a mind shift change that has to happen if we really want implicit change. I think that's really important, and that's going to come from education for sustainability. And like Megan said, is approaching everything at the same time. It's mindset, it's well-being, it's, it's an understanding of sustainability as a big global thing as opposed to just a subject. So um, if we accept that that's the, that's the main end point, at the same time, we're going to start doing this. We can't wait. Uh, my first thing would be to find out what you don't know. Um, so audit something. So there's loads of frameworks you could use that are free. You could pay a, a company, you get the kids involved, and then they're educating for sustainability. So first thing would be start with finding out what you don't know. Once you've got something in your hand, then you can get started. Um, I, I would say for educators, it's um, important to hold the space for yourself as well emotionally of just of bringing in this new curriculum, how it's going to affect your students and making sure that you have your own self-care plans, that you're, you have your own network of support, who you can talk to, who you can share best practice with, troubleshoot with. Um, so, so actually feeling that you're in a space where you're confident um, in being able to teach this um, from, you know, from sort of your own well-being as well. Yeah, and something, a place I like to start is vocabulary and looking at a couple of key terms and, and trying to work out what the hell they mean. Like, what is sustainability? And mm -hmm. and uh, global citizenship is is a really difficult term for most people to get their head around. They either think it's, do I need to speak different languages or travel around the world? Uh, and so one of the, the opening questions that I start with is, are you a global citizen? And to answer that, you have to have a personal connection to what the hell global citizenship means to you. And, and that's great. So I think for me, it's a starting point. And that answer could be, well, I don't know uh, if I'm a global citizen, because what does that actually mean? And so I think starting with some of those those key conversations has been useful. And then as Brett was saying, uh, a couple of questions to follow on from that, you know, what's important to us? What are we doing well? Uh, what more and could and should we be doing uh, in that space? And then just exploring those concepts and ideas and finding the little gaps where we can add in uh Add, add, add in some either professional learning or opportunities or connections or perspectives or provocations, uh, just just starting very simple with those sorts of things. But they really go a long way once you once you just yes. start having a couple of key conversations. I think things start to flow quite quickly um, from what I've seen in in recent experience for sure. And just sort of sitting on that a second, um, have you found that sort of getting a couple of teachers that are super passionate about this on board and then them running their own little sessions for 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 their colleagues is, is that something you guys have have seen and tried in your schools as well sort of getting those one or two early adopters that are just hyper passionate about it yep for sure yep having having that energy somewhere someone's a champion for it it always brings people along so there's no doubt they're good as long as we don't um burn those people out right we, we need to yeah. not rely on them they need to share the energy so that it becomes institutional and as megan says collective collective change is the power here the network so sometimes it's also the dissenters um, to, 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 to listen to what are the apprehensions or the challenges or the barriers to, to entry with some of these things. Uh, I mean, I, I feel confident in that sense because I've been talking about this stuff for, for a long time. So you'd, you'd want to feel comfortable with doing that. But, um, but yeah, sometimes it is worth opening up the room and just saying, well, what are our challenges or what are our, uh, our barriers to entry here or, or progression? Um, and, then, and just taking them on and seeing where we go. Fantastic. 
Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much, guys. That's been a really, really great conversation. Um, you know, such a such a massive <laughs> part in the topic. Um, but there's so many, so many areas I'm sure we could dig into, uh, into a part two or even maybe a part three discussion. But yeah, thank you so much for this initial chat. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting feedback from listeners from the, the ASEAN community and, and further afield as well. Thanks again.